Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode three of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omer, and today we're broadcasting again out of Nashville, Tennessee. Really privileged to have Dr. Matthew Walker as our guest. Matthew is an associate professor of biomedical engineering at Vanderbilt University and has a secondary appointment as a faculty in the Department of Radiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is a key component of the Medical Innovators Development Program at Vanderbilt. Really privileged to have you here today, Matthew. Thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Oh, thank you, Dr. Omri. I came to Vanderbilt from industry by way of uh, Harvard MIT and then Merck. And Merck, I was head of the cardiovascular imaging division, which also required of me to be in charge of the technology integration systems. We use technologies in Merck to help advance drug development. So in those components, it allowed me to always think about things in ways that I can make things better, right? Innovating. And I like to say that change does not necessarily mean improvement. You can have a lot of change, but sometimes they're not progress. So I learned early on what the scope of innovation really meant. And I think that innovation requires a change in culture to get you to the best place. So Vanderbilt brought me here six years ago to lead that hybrid of industry and academic innovation in the space where we're able to train students how to operate in innovation on more rapid time cycles or more rapid deliverables and more rapid prototypes that actually are more proximal to the clinical problem. So Matthew, you have a fascinating background. You have a lot of experiences that I think have helped shape you is who you are. Yes. Can you start uh, uh, with a younger <laughs> Matthew Walker? The younger Matthew Walker's plan was to be an astronaut. Okay. An so astronaut. You an were going to go up into space. I was a part of NASA's Grow Your Own program where uh, even out of high school, they recruited five people across the nation to be a part of the astronaut Grow Your Own, Start Your Own program. So I made it all the way through undergrad in mechanical engineering and finished mechanical engineering and then went straight to NASA as a mechanical engineer and an astronaut candidate. So I made it through two different rounds of the astronaut candidacy program, ended up at number 34, they chose 17. And in that choice, um, the mission specialist spot was the one I was going for. But because they cut it, the pilots decided that they wanted mission specialist spots. So all the persons who were not pilots did not get the mission specialist spot, so the first George Bush decided that we're going to cut it to 17, and hence I went to Plan B, which is get my doctorate from Tulane Medical School, then going on to Harvard and then MIT. But my Plan A was to be in space. So, so Plan A was space, mm-hmm. which is a great plan. Okay, yes, I, I, I think many of us have had that plan, except we learned very young that it was not feasible. You actually, you you were so close to that plan. Yes. And then you pivoted to Plan B. Right. Right. The plan B, being at NASA allowed me to realize that you can't really be a thought leader until you get as much education as you can. And my goal was to be a thought leader. So that really motivated me. That was kind of my raison d'etre, if you will, for going into biomedical engineering and innovation. How did you come up with the term innovation activist? 
I was born into this mindset. My father was a civil rights leader. He was the first to integrate lunch counters in Nashville. He was a freedom rider. Uh, my grandfather was a surgeon. He was the first surgeon at Vanderbilt, so much so that um, they used to call him the ghost surgeon because he would come in and do a procedure after the patient was intubated. Do the procedure, was asked to leave the room. Wow. So that the patient would not know Wow. that the surgeon was black. And he, I would hear these stories growing up that said, son, there's always an opportunity to make something better, find it, whether it's social, religious, academic. So early on, I realized that in order to make a change in the culture, in the zeitgeist, you have to be acutely aware that there's always an opportunity to make things better. Grandfather taught me that, father taught me that. So much so they just erected a monument uh, to my father last year, uh, which is called the Witness Walls, but he wrote the proposal for them to do a civil rights monument in Nashville. Wow. So, so I was born into activism. I just blur the lines. It doesn't have to be social activism. It doesn't have to be racial activism. You can have innovation activism. You can have people willing to make a change when there's a needed change in any arena. So that's what I was born into. It just so happens I think very innovatively and not as socially conscious as they were, but technology is my... How would you describe activism? Activism to me, it's a movement. It's not an activity. It's a cultural change in the zeitgeist of the time. It's a revolution. You want to be an engineer that is able to not just push for change, but be an influencer where you can encourage the pull for change. And that pull for change comes from the adoption of the technology. Too often we just think as engineers that just create something, throw it over the fence and hope somebody uses it. We don't have anybody embedded in the concept of actually seeing it all the way through across that chasm of early adopters and early majority. So the diffusion of innovation only takes place when you have people who are as willing to receive your designs as you are in innovating your designs. And that requires a whole scale change in culture. How, how do you do more than just throw it over the fence and cross your fingers and hope it'll work? Well, but you embed a medical innovator through the development program who are clinicians, who are as aware, as aware of the engineering that goes into a new device or a new process as they are the clinical flow and the standard of care. So they are embed, embedded in both the design and the acceptance and the dissemination of why this new innovation should be placed. Because clinicians are typically not engineers, they're typically oftentimes told that they have to use a new device without being vested in the why. So because we have a common why between engineers and clinicians, but different hows and whats, we should operate in that space of the why. And that space of a why creates adopters, creates changes in attitudes and acceptance and gets us past that dogma of standard of care. You know, we don't typically even ask how long the standard of care has been there. How the standard of care, standard of care should have a life timeline to it that we're able to track and understand when it should have changed and how it should have changed. But we don't really track that because that's not the way the clinical flow works. How do we align members of the healthcare team, whether they are the clinicians, whether they are industry trying to develop new technologies, whether they're marketing. How do we how do we align everyone around the why? We put them at the same table at the same time 
and talk more about the why than the what and the how. Oftentimes, our, we get lost in translation around the what and the how. You know, we have to blur the silos uh, that divide our operational constraints and realize that we should operate in our common space. And if we operate in a common space, we're much more likely to drive what comes from that common space all the way through to acceptance. But we so often operate in silos and don't blur the lines between disciplines that we get stuck in the communication. So, so what does activism look like in healthcare? Activism in healthcare is more about understanding that there's a marriage between passion and purpose. And in healthcare, there's a lot of purpose and there's a lot of passion, but people don't understand their own individual zones of what I call zones of genius, right? Zones of genius are where you marry those two points, the points of purpose and passion around the common good of a patient and realize that it's more important to operate around the common good of the patient than the administrative um, doldrums of the clinical practice space. So I think when you get people with a common zone of genius operating around their purpose and passion, you're ripe for it. I think clinical spaces are the most rich spaces for problem identification, the most rich spaces for opportunities for improvement, because every day you have a new problem that's aligned with the patient, the provider, or the system. And there's so many operational opportunities to cultivate those problems and develop needs assessments around those problems and ideate around those problems. It's just a rich, flourishing forest of problems that just need to be captured in the right way by the right people. Let's imagine you are an engineer and you want to make a difference in healthcare. You're going to remain in your engineering position. How do we create a situation where you can have interaction with the clinicians to really understand the problems that you might help solve for. I believe in something called engineering grand rounds. Just as you have medical grand rounds, just as you have surgical grand rounds, there should be engineering grand rounds where engineers are brought to the same communication space where you communicate about a patient or or circumstance as the clinicians are and might contribute to some ideation around technologies that might advance a problem just as much as a surgical procedure will advance a problem or a medical intervention will advance a problem. I just think that engineers who are trained in the process of design thinking, if they're put in a circumstance where there are environmental pressures, which is the clinical space, where they're allowed to exist and operate and create that shared context, then because of their design thinking background, the innovation opportunities will bubble up. So that also sounds like a a necessary additional step is to have a greater linkage between the industries that are developing solutions and healthcare, existing hospitals, healthcare organizations. Yeah, being in innovation for as long as I have, I have come to learn one thing. You cannot innovate out of a space that you're not exposed to the pressure around. You're walking down the street and it starts raining. You would not have thought of coming up with a system or a device to protect you from the rain if you had not been exposed to that environmental pressure, right? And I believe that's the way our minds work in general. When you expose yourself to certain environmental pressure, 
progressions and you have certain potentials and skill sets built in, then you will bubble into an innovation opportunity. Now, I don't think you can teach innovation, but I think you can teach people the process of design thinking where they overlay that design thinking on top of their environmental pressures. And from that, there's a magic that happens, right? That allows you to cultivate and bubble into a new idea. But you have to lay all the groundwork down. So we need the pressures of the setting to help catalyze that magic. Bingo. That's it. And I've seen it time and time again. And coming from industry back into academia, what, what was that like? for you? Oh, that was a big difference. Number one, innovation happens on different time horizons. In industry, your innovation takes place on every quarter because you have the market and you have the Wall Street telling you that you have to be uh, coming up with something new every quarter, right? So that time, that in and of itself. So every day in industry is about exposing yourself to these pressures, no matter whether it's a new target, no matter whether it's not a competing company that's operating a new target, and you have to find common ground that's going to make your drug unique. You're always looking at all the opportunities uh, that will give you the potential to find an innovative gap. So in industry, the, the function often is in these quarterly cycles. In healthcare, is actually on a daily basis where clinicians are encountering the problems and having to solve them on a daily basis. Right. They may see similar problems every day, or they may see new problems that they've never faced. Right. How do we take the, the, the constant focus that industry has on innovating because their survival depends on it and translate that into products that people within healthcare can help create. The people within healthcare are responsible for the translation of the products. I think the main role for people in healthcare is to be open to identifying the problems and recognizing what a problem really looks like. Whether it's the patient, whether it's whether or not the patient ate the night before, uh, did the patient need uh, help with their discharge, every little thing that happens, whether it's the provider who provides the patient the procedure, how many people are in the operating room at any time, how long has something been the standard of care, how is the procedure performed the last time, can it be performed better, how much wiring is in the room, how, how safe is it to walk around an operating room, or if it's the system, you know, what's the cost of a procedure? How many procedures do you do a day? Where are the opportunities for improvement? That's the role of the clinic, is to identify the problems and be aware for opportunities to improve. And that's where good engineers come in, because they're not just responsible for engineering. They're responsible for quality. Anybody can come up with improvement. They think improvement for a snapshot. But what's the sustainability of that solution, and what's the long-term quality of that improvement? Thank you so much for for joining us today and is there any um, you know is there any last bit of advice you might leave for someone who's listening to this podcast who wants to wants to contribute to innovation in healthcare Yes. One last thing I'll say, I think that we need to realize that there are different stages of innovation adoption. There are the early adopters, and they are the people that wait around the line when there's a new iPhone that opens without even knowing what the iPhone's going to do. Those are the 
early adopters, I want us to be acutely aware that we need to move it from the early majority. So you go from early adopters to the early majority. Once you get the early majority, then your innovation is going to take off. I want to move the line of early majority to the stage of early adopters. And you can only do that if you have good innovation influencers. So I want people to focus on not just the technologies, but being a thought leader that's aware enough of their clinical space and their clinical flow to move the early majority to the early adopter space. And that way you'll get better penetration. A discrete call to action might be for someone to use their role as an influencer. Yes. To help catalyze the adoption. Bingo. And then I think you will have a better zeitgeist for innovation, but a lot of it is just resistance to change. And in Merck, we would always say, change the people or change the people. <laughs> so be keenly aware that innovation is a requirement, and we've got too much technology in our hands right now not to be more forward thinking about advancing it. Well, thank you, Matthew, and thank you, everyone, for listening today. Please share your thoughts on innovation activism with me on Twitter, at Reed Omery, and stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activists next month.